I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Megan Williams, sitting in for Neil Cookson. Good evening, I'm Samira Moyden, sitting in for Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Tonight, conditional release. A gender rights campaigner tells us South African women already face threatening conditions, which makes it that much harder to see Oscar Pistorius granted parole. Too little and way too late. After four decades, two New Brunswick men have been found not guilty of a 1983 murder, but Innocence Canada says their acquittal is cold comfort to the men and the family of the victim. Game changers. Female athletes have already kicked off the year with a bang. And 2023 as well was a banner year for women in sport. We revisit Neil's conversation with one of the players of the unofficial 1971 Women's World Cup of Soccer and the co-director of a new film highlighting that monumental and largely unacknowledged moment in sport. Unshellfish. We hear from a Californian librarian whose popular TikTok videos promote libraries as places of radical welcome, even in the face of social crises that are pushing book lenders to their limits. And money laundering. A dog owner does whatever it takes to salvage her cash after her golden doodle snacks on $4,000 in bills. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that doesn't like to imagine the return on that investment. Almost 11 years after he shot Riva Steenkamp to death, Oscar Pistorius is out on parole. The South African Paralympic sprinter was originally convicted of culpable homicide or manslaughter after shooting his girlfriend through a bathroom door in 2013. He claimed he thought she was an intruder. Later, on appeal, Mr. Pistorius was found guilty of murder. Today's release comes after Mr. Pistorius was granted parole in November after serving more than half of his 15-year sentence, minus time served. Bulelwa Adonis is a spokesperson for Women for Change South Africa, a gender rights organization that publicly opposed Mr. Pistorius's parole bid last year. We reached her in South Africa's Free State. Bulelwa, what message do you think the release of Oscar Pistorius today sends to South Africans? We feel like it sends a very disheartened uh, message because A country like ours, uh, where the femicide rate is five times the global average, we are saddened by the reality that it almost seems like the the feelings, the emotions and the lives of victims and survivors are not taken seriously enough. And yes, people will say that he did serve some time. And yes, he he did. um, And that justice may have taken its course because in our country, if you serve half of your sentence, then you are eligible for parole. But the reality is with, you know, our high femicide rate, with with the title of being known as the rape capital of the world, it's very disheartening to know that somebody who's taken a life um, can be set free despite the restrictions that he has in play. Mm-hmm. How are women reacting to his release? So um, people are on the fence. There are some people that are okay with it and some people who are not. I think um, the reality of our country is that to some extent as a society, we've almost become numb to um, such headlines. I think we we have kind of normalized ourselves to the reality that in this country, there's this mentality where basically victims get the short end of the stick and um, the predators get the higher end of the stick. And, Mm. you know, they always seem to come out on, on the more positive end of things. Part of the point of the justice system is to rehabilitate people. Um, Obviously, the people who granted him parole believe he's a changed man. Uh, Do you? 
Honestly, I'm, I think I'm going to quote, I think it was Reva's mom when she said in one of her statements that rehabilitation starts with, you know, taking accountability. And in in this case, Oscar has never sh- taken accountability, you know, or, or about on his actions. So for that mere fact, to us, we feel like that is the first step to um, show that you've been rehabilitated and the mere fact that he's never shown any form of remorse. Um, no, to the simple answer is no. Hmm. Now, your organization, Women for Change, created an image of a text message from Ms. Steenkamp to Mr. Pistorius that the prosecutors had used as evidence. It read, I'm scared of you sometimes of how you snap at me. What does that message say to you? I think it definitely exposes um, the fear um, in Reva's case, in in, in Rivas Tienkamp's case, that you know she was fearful, and I think it also exposes the fact that maybe there was um, uh, there was definitely some anger issues on his part. Why did you feel it was important to post that? I think the reason that my founder posted this tweet was because I feel like as a country. We're so numb to expecting gruesome headlines when we turn on the television to watch the news or turn on the radio, for instance. I think it's to revoke the reality of what this um, individual has done and I guess the impact that he had on Reva's life, who's no longer with us, to speak for herself. So I think it was simply just as a reminder because um, although, yes, some time was, um, was served in jail, which we're grateful for because on most cases in our country, most predators just roam free, just get bail and don't spend much time in prison, mm. to say the least, mm. let alone eight years, you know. But the the fact of the matter is we were not consistent in our efforts towards gender-based violence and femicide. And we think that's one of the major problems. We think that's why this is such a major issue in our country because we have the tendency to speak about it for a moment and then forget about mm-hmm. things in this case. So I think that's maybe the reason why this picture was was posted. Mr. Pistorius will be under parole supervision for the next five years. Uh, he'll also have to attend rehabilitation programs and is barred from consuming alcohol or other banned substances. Do those conditions give you any comfort? Not much, hey, not not much. As a woman in South Africa, you, you automatically feel like you are a breathing target. Mm. You ask yourself, um, when when are you next? You know, when will it be you? So I, I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, we've lost a life and um, we, we, we can't get her back. Her loved ones can never get her back. And um, he has the luxury of sitting in his uncle's place, um, you know. Um, the the mere fact that he hasn't showed any remorse mm-hmm. makes me wonder, you know, makes me a, a slight, still fearful. Perhaps um, with these restrictions, you know, going to all these different things for anger management and, you know, all these different things, maybe there'll be a, a change. But until that very point, until he decides to show remorse, maybe then people will feel, um, well, well, we will feel, um, I guess, better about the restrictions. Mm-hmm. It's been over a decade since Ms. Steenkamp was killed. What's changed since then when it comes to how South Africans see domestic violence and abuse? I think we see it as a normal thing, honestly, because of how common it, it, it occurs in our country. Um, what has changed? Nothing has gotten better. It's it, it's traumatizing to say the least. I mean, between, uh, I think it's April 2022 and uh, March 2023, um, a, a total of 3,914 women were murdered. And every 29 seconds, uh, a woman is raped. So um, things have only gotten worse. What changes would you like to see to help things get better? I think we, we deal with a lot of corruption. So, you know, we hear of bribes and cases that are going missing. Not all of our police stations have rape kits yet. And um, even those who take the, the initial route of, of um, getting a rape kit, unfortunately, we also suffer the, the issue of having a major DNA backlog. I think another thing is this happens everywhere in our homes and our families and our schools. And I think it's important that we educate our, our children about this. You know, things like what is consent, what, you know, understanding um, what no means and all these different things mm-hmm. and diving into it. Um, I think it's 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 things like that that need to be implemented in order for, you know, 
things to get better. Okay. Bulelwa, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Bulelwa Adonis is a spokesperson for Women for Change South Africa, a gender rights organization that publicly opposed Mr. Pistorius's parole bid last year. We reached Ms. Adonis in South Africa's Free State. After four decades, Robert Mailman and Walter Gillespie have lived their first full day as innocent men. The two men were convicted of the 1983 murder of George Lehman, a St. John, New Brunswick man. They spent 18 years in prison despite maintaining their innocence. Yesterday, the Chief Justice agreed and ruled that both men are not guilty of murder. Mr. Gillespie is 80 years old, and Mr. Mailman, who is 76, has been diagnosed with terminal cancer and has only a few months left to live. This morning, Innocence Canada co-president Ron Dalton spoke about what this acquittal means for him personally. This was a a long, outstanding case course for Innocence Canada. Uh, These gentlemen were convicted before there was an Innocence Canada. 33 years ago, I was serving a life sentence alongside of them. Uh, at the federal maximum security prison in Renews, New Brunswick. So for me, I know I, my conviction got overturned 25 years ago. It's taken uh, till to yesterday for theirs to get overturned. Uh, but what we actually did yesterday is we had two murder trials within an hour because they were arraigned on the on the new trials that had been ordered. Uh, the Crown opted not to put forward any evidence, and we entered a, a motion for acquittal, which the Crown joined us in, but technically we, we conducted two murder trials yesterday, so that not only did the Crown not offer any evidence, but the Chief Justice of the province uh, declared them not guilty and acquitted them. So it's the, first time, uh, it's the first time in 40 years that they've had the status that you and I enjoy as, as citizens of being presumed innocent of any crime. It's got to be cold comfort at the age of 75 and 80, respectively, after spending 18 years behind bars. Like, you went through this yourself. Like, what is what is the impact on somebody to go through this and to know you're innocent and, and to not have anyone believe you? It's, it's very cold comfort, of course, particularly at this late stage in their lives. Cold comfort for anyone that spends a day in prison for something that they haven't done. Uh, and, and I think the province of Nurantic really wants to look into what went wrong here. It's not Mr. Gillespie and Mr. Millman's a job to unravel that portion of things. But if a case can go so wrong against two individuals and stay so wrong for 40 years, there's clearly problems there. Uh, it's not only a personal tragedy for Mr. Mailman and Mr. Gillespie, uh, it's a tragedy for Mr. Lehman's family. They will never receive justice. Uh, there's no, no uh, reasonable expectation that that crime will ever be properly investigated and prosecuted now. And it's a, a bit of a tragedy for the, the rest of us. Uh, citizens in this country and, and this province deserve to have some faith in their criminal justice system. We've learned uh, the hard way that it's not perfect. It's made of human beings who make mistakes. Mistakes are one thing, but I think uh, if they start looking in this case, they'll find more than mistakes. There was some malfeasance. There was people that uh, were cutting corners and uh, starting with conclusions and trying to find uh, evidence that would fit things that we commonly find in wrongful conviction cases, unfortunately. And this essentially means that there is or was, perhaps, given the, the time scale here, a murderer out there who was never caught. Well, to, to put a, a harsher light on it, uh, you could say that the justice officials at the time, police and or prosecutors, uh, contributed to someone getting away with murder, either intentionally or, or unintentionally, but someone clearly killed Mr. Uh, Lehman. He didn't beat himself up and set himself on fire and drag his body to Rockwood Park on his own. Someone took his life. It just was not Mr. Mailman or Mr. Gillespie. That was Innocence Canada co-president Ron Dalton speaking with Information Morning St. John host Julia Wright.
Michael Threats loved the library growing up, so much so that he became a librarian. But to him, libraries are about much more than books. They're places where a particular kind of magic happens, one he's dubbed Library Joy. My heart is overflowing with library joy right now. I had told you all that I wanted to start handing out blankets to my community, to those in need. Everyone needs a blanket. The unhoused, the unsheltered, the elderly, families with library kids, people who may not be able to afford enough heat in these very, very cold days. Thank you for your support. Thank you for supporting libraries, for loving libraries. Library blankets, library love, yes! That was librarian Michael Threats in one of his highly popular TikTok videos in which he spreads library joy. His approach has led some to call him the LeVar Burton or Mr. Rogers of our time. We reached Mr. Threats earlier today in his library at the Fairfield Civic Center in Solana County, California. Michael, what's going on in your library today? Have you experienced any library joy like the one we just heard in that clip? <laughs> I have not. It is only uh, about 7, about 8 a.m. where I am right now. I have not experienced that level of joy. Um, so not quite yet, but I am ready for the joy to happen. <laughs> so what is library joy? Library joy in its simplest form is just the joy of, of the library, the joy of realizing that you belong in the library as your authentic self. You could be having your best day. You could be having your worst day. Um, there are just so many options. There's so many resources, and everybody belongs in the library. And that, to me, is the epitome of library joy. Is there a moment of library joy that you've experienced recently that, that encapsulates all of those things you're talking about? You know, probably the moment that happened to me yesterday is there was a library kid who came in with their library growing up looking for um, books for their reading level. I believe that there is a second grader um, who was looking for, like, um, reading level one, um, which, which is lower. And you mm -hmm. could just see that this library kid was pretty discouraged with the fact that they're at a one reading level. Mm -hmm. um, and I was able to just show that library kid where, like, our Fly Guy books, where our Mo Willems books are. And you could just see, like, the library kid's face light up. Like, I, was on, I wasn't judging that library kid. I wasn't trying to be like, oh, you're only at a one. You should be at a two mm -hmm. at second grade. Um, and then you could just see that the library grown-ups start to mirror me, which is all I was trying to do is just show, show mm -hmm. the library grown-up that there was nothing wrong with that library kid, that library kid is at their reading level and just emphasizing that the library, the local public library, is all about joy. We want kids to be at their appropriate reading level, but first we want them to love books. Um, and they went home with two books that day. So mm. library grown up was smiling, library kid was smiling, I was smiling, and if books could smile, they were probably smiling too <laughs> going home with that library kid. And you seem to have, a, I mean, you were, a, I guess, a bookish kid, but you seem to have Very a, much so. Yeah, but you seem to have a lot of empathy for kids who aren't. Where did you get that? You know, I'm, I am not at all shy about the things I've experienced um, in life. I've gone through, smile, through my own mental health struggles. I've struggled mm -hmm. with anxiety. I've struggled with depression with panic attacks, with nightmare disorder, with PTSD. Um, and I think when I, when I show empathy to kids who are not library kids or library kids, it's just me trying to reach those kids who are just like me. Mm. Um, I strongly believe that anybody, anybody any, any kid is a library kid and waiting. Um, same for, same for grownups. I just, I, to me, like that, the library is a sanctuary. It is one of the last third spaces. There is no expectations when you come to the library. Um, and I just use my life experiences, my struggles to reach kids where they're at and just to show them that there's nothing wrong with not being okay, that mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm, I'm the local library person. I'm their neighbor. I'm their community helper who just wants them to make it day by day and live their best life. My Solano County Library is, is my hometown library, is my mm -hmm. childhood library, and now it's um, my library that I get to give back to my community and just help them see the joy that is the local library. And you're, you're spreading that joy far beyond your local library as well with these videos that you've been posting that are hugely popular. Why do you think they're resonating so much? Um, I think it's just that I try to be as genuine as possible, and it just reminds them of how much positivity, how much good there is in the world, especially in this wild world that can be so negative. I think the stories that I encounter of joy, of happiness, remind people of their own happiness. Right. And, I mean, you're also putting out this message at a time when libraries have become sites of growing tension, with more and more people relying on them for shelter or even safety. How is that playing out in your library? 
You know, that's a that's such a complicated question. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's very tricky because I think it's hard. Like you said, there's so much going on in libraries with um, with banned books, with libraries celebrating the freedom to read, with the libraries. When we talk about belonging, libraries are for everybody. They're for the unhoused. They're for the mentally ill. They're mm-hmm. for everybody. It's an open space. You you don't need a library card to come on inside. You can take a seat. You can rest. Um, and for my library, I think it's great, but it's also challenging because um, I, I think, like you said, my mission reaches so many people that there's more attention on us. And library workers are already burnt out, but um, so it, it is. It is hard. It is a struggle day in and day out. But my library team—they do. They're so remarkable. They do a such such a great job showing kindness, showing empathy to our community. Mm-hmm. I mean, not 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 all libraries are coping as well as yours. We recently spoke to a librarian from Hay River in the Northwest Territories, who told us her staff just aren't trying to cope with the kind of issues that they're facing now. Um, and she said community members who come there are feeling increasingly unsafe in the library. So their solution was to remove chairs in their library to discourage loitering. Do you understand that approach? I, I, I understand that approach, and I sympathize with that approach. So many libraries have that unsafe feeling that you described. Even my library, there are people who, come down, who sometimes come in and see see certain people inside or outside, and they feel those similar things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned that to say with what you just described is I don't entirely agree with it, but I get where they're coming from. Um, for that library, I would encourage them to put the chairs back and have conversations with the people who are um, making people feel unsafe, ask them what they can do for them to help them out, Mm -hmm. Um, see if there are mobile showers, if there are things that they can give them, and also have open conversations with the people who are complaining who feel unsafe and ask them what they they could possibly do. Mm -hmm. Um, You never know. Hearing them out, you could end up saying, oh, well, here's this person's story. You may not feel safe around them, but they're the nicest person in the world. They did this and that. They just happen to not have enough money to um, have a home, have an apartment, or even a car to live in. So I think open communication just opens up the opportunity for empathy and for people at that library to remember that they're all that they're all neighbors, that they may that they may look a certain way, they may feel a certain way, but they all need one another. And when you start celebrating community, that's when that um, feeling of being unsafe falls away and everybody feels safe and loved in their community and in their local library. Michael, thanks for sharing your library joy with us today. Thank you. Michael Threets is supervising librarian at the Fairfield Civic Center Library in Solano County, California. That's where we reached him. We've all heard the excuse, the dog ate my homework. As some of us may have even tried using it. Of course, with very rare exceptions, like my sixth grade book report, for example, that story is typically false. But recently, one dog owner in Pittsburgh found herself dealing with an all-too-real case of canine consumption after her seven-year-old golden doodle, Cecil, developed a sudden appetite for something even more valuable than homework. Carrie Law is Cecil's owner. We reached her in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Carrie, when did you first realize that Cecil had gotten into something he shouldn't have? So I was working and I just hear my husband yelling that Cecil ate the money. And it was just a complete shock. I couldn't even really register it because he's never done anything like that in his life. Did you understand immediately what the money meant? I did know, yeah, because we had just pulled out $4,000 for a landscaping project that we were working on, um, and it had been on the you know countertop for maybe 30 minutes before uh, Clayton yelled this out across the house. Wow, so Cecil moved fast with the cash. Is this <laughs> typical behavior? I mean, does he like chewing stuff up? No, no, he really doesn't. Um, He's like a very particular dog. He knows which toys are his toys. He knows which toys are my son's toys. And like, he does not touch my son's toys. Um, He's really funny that way. And he just, he's not like a chewer. He just kind of likes to carry toys around. So um, for him to do this was like just so wild. He's never gotten on a counter or anything. Wow. Can, Can you give us a little snapshot of Cecil's personality? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, we like to joke that there's a person trapped inside of him. He has very expressive <laughs> eyes. Um, he enjoys watching TV. He really likes Harry Potter and will like kind of interact with like the hippogriffs when they're on, which is so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's just kind of a goofy uh, hundred pound lap dog. Who, who likes to eat money. Apparently, yes. (laughs) So you have two issues here. Obviously, the fact that he ate all of his money. Um, But there's also your little buddy Cecil, who is perhaps physically affected by this. I mean, did he ingest all of those bills? And what, what were those bills? Were they 100 bills or... They were 50s and 100s. um, And he didn't ingest everything. There were a lot that were just shredded and, you know, torn in half on the floor. Um, He did ingest quite a few. Um, There was at least like, I want to say maybe 2000 or so that we were, you know, not able to put together until after um, he expelled those. Um, And so, you know, it was just kind of such a long process to figure out, you know, what we could even recover. Well, I, I hesitate to get into the expelled part, but <laughs> l- but let's descend in, into the nitty gritty here. Um, like, how did how did you get the cash back? So um, at two a.m. that following morning, we heard that telltale sign that you know he's going to be sick, um, and we had already like I should say we had talked with our vet. They said he should be fine. He's a big dog as long as he's acting normal. You know, don't worry about it. But he did get sick, um, and meaning uh, meaning what uh, throwing up? up. Yeah, yeah, he threw up, and so um, and it was very quick. There were a bunch of bills in there, so we collected those. We put those way out of reach so he didn't go for round two um, and went back to bed. And then in the morning, we washed all of those off. And we realized, you know, maybe he's going to pass them the other way Mm -hmm. and we'll be able to get some more money back. And? And we did, yes. So uh, the next day or the next, I guess, two or so days, um, my husband, who I joke is like the true hero of this story, uh, followed Cecil around the yard and was picking up anything (laughs) that Cecil was dropping off. And uh, we'd kind of knock off the solids and start washing it all. (laughs) (laughs) So you, how long did you spend washing all of all of these bills off that came out with his poop, I guess, right? It, It took a while. Yeah. Um, Because we, you know, it wasn't just like you rinse it off and you're done. We kept rinsing it with soap over and over Mm. um, just because we kind of wanted to feel comfortable handling it. And we knew, you know, if we were bringing this to the bank, they needed to feel comfortable handling it. So Mm. that took a lot of time. And then putting them all back together took even more time because we had to have a left and right serial number, um, you know, the majority of that serial number to match um, in order to to get the bill replaced. So how much of the $4,000 were you able to salvage? Um, I think we're at $3,550. And then we have scraps that we just haven't been able, you know, they're too far gone. So those we'll have to try to mail in and see if um, there's a government agency that might be able to replace those. And I think we'll also frame a couple. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, absolutely. So you're uh, you're still at what, about 450 bucks? Yes, yeah. And... You have no hard feelings towards Cecil over the whole incident? No, no, not at all. He's such a sweet dog. And, you know, I don't know. It's just one of these crazy things that happen. Um, It could happen to anybody. Anybody's dog, you know, gets into trouble one way or the other. And, yeah, you can't really blame them. Carrie, thanks so much for speaking with me. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Carrie Law is the owner of Cecil the Golden Doodle. We reached her in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Women's sport. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts.
got off to a banner start in 2024. The Professional Women's Hockey League kicked off its inaugural season this week with New York sweeping Toronto 4-0. And with more than 8,000 fans in the stands, Ottawa's first PWHL game on Tuesday set a new record for women's hockey attendance. It's a milestone that follows a big year for female athletes. From cricket to volleyball to basketball, women athletes set a new bar attracting record-breaking audiences. But for many, the event that truly showcased the power of women's sport in 2023 was the Women's World Cup of Soccer. Held in Australia and New Zealand, the tournament drew just shy of 2 million fans total, almost three times as many per game as the last tournament held in France in 2019. But while that competition's success was historic, it was also a nod to the past, a past showcased in the documentary Copa 71. Do you know what we're here to talk about today, Brandy? Women's soccer. More specifically about the first Women's World Cup, which was when? 1991. And you were there, right? Representing the USA. I've actually got something I'd quite like you to watch. Okay. That's a massive stadium. It's a men's football match. It's women's football. What? This is women's football. What year was this? 1971. This is unbelievable. Why didn't I know about this? From the documentary Copa 71, that's retired American soccer player Brandy Chastain learning about the unofficial 1971 Women's World Cup. Held in Mexico City, the tournament saw eight teams from around the world compete in jam-packed stadiums. But for more than 50 years, the unsanctioned event has gone widely unacknowledged. Rachel Ramsey co-directed Copa 71 along with James Erskine. It premiered in September at the Toronto International Film Festival, and Ms. Ramsey joined Neil in the As It Happened studio at the time for a feature interview, along with former Danish national football player Anne Stengard, who we reached in Gulne, Denmark. Rachel, that was you we heard speaking with Brandy Chastain in that clip just a moment ago. Clearly, you've surprised her. She's stunned. It's quite a moment to open this documentary with because as you watch the film, Brandy Chastain and other players, it goes from shock to, to anger almost that they didn't know about it. What was that feeling for you? Yeah, I, mean, it's, uh, I think like the film, it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the last few years because you, you get excited about a new story and there's that sense of discovery and then as we realized quite how repressed this story has been and how traumatic that was for the women involved, things start to feel smaller and tighter and more unpleasant. And you get that sort of tight feeling in your throat and you think this this isn't okay. This, uh, there's a real sense of anger there. The tournament itself, it's called Women's World Cup. That's an unofficial title. FIFA has never sanctioned it, but it was an incredible moment for these players and for the sport. Just give our give our listeners a sense of what this tournament was all about. So in this in the sixties and seventies and going back further, there was an international, let's call it a subculture, of women playing football all around the world. That is something that was denied by most of the football authorities, um, actively not encouraged. And it culminates in there being enough women playing and enough support for it for people to clearly see that there was a possibility of a tournament on this scale. So there was a, a smaller tournament in 1970 in Italy, which had unofficial international teams playing against each other. And in 1971, um, some very entrepreneurial Mexican businessmen, uh, having hosted the Men's World Cup in 1970, realized that there was there was an appetite for this. And they thought, you know, the, the phrase I've been using is build it and they will come. So they decided to put on this tournament. Yeah. One of the players you, you tracked down is Anne Stengard, who was one of the, the players representing Team Denmark. And Anne, let me bring you in now. Before the filmmakers got in touch with you, when was the last time you had thought or spoken about the Cup in 1971? Oh, you know, we also think it was it was forgotten and nobody spoke about it. But in two, 2018, Hans Krabbe, a journalist from Jutland, decided to write a book about the forgotten triumph. 
and uh, he visited us all the players and uh, that what was the first time we realized yes we did it and we were a part of a great event did that new recognition those interviews you just talked about the call from Rachel's team did those feelings match what you felt when you got the call all those years ago to play in this world cup in mexico yes yes uh, you know it's uh, it's special uh, these 5 weeks in mexico and now these 5 days uh, with uh, Rachel and all the team in uh, Toronto is uh, amazing. And it's, you know, following up the five weeks and the five days, it's the best w- things that happened in my life. You loved soccer uh, as a young woman, clearly, football. Um, yeah. What was it like for you to play at that time? Because, you know, Ra- Rachel mentioned the popularity, but also the forces at play to keep you all off the pitch. So what was it like for you in Denmark as a young player? Yeah, I had a, a quite special story because uh, when when uh, I was playing with the boys, we have no uh, women team in, in my little uh, city. And uh, one day a man came and asked me why I'm not in uh, in a bigger city close to here, Svendborg, because there will be an election for uh, the national team and I find they find a club for me and uh, I played a game for the first time in my life, but I have played football all my life, but not a game. Uh-huh. To play together with women, it was amazing because sharing this passion for football with other women, it was without words. When you're you're going to Mexico City, you're getting this opportunity was it just about playing on that level, playing the sport that you love, or did you recognize at that time the politics of it all, the implications, how big of a thing this was? Yeah, we didn't realize how big it was until we landed in Mexico City. And enormous crowd of journalists and photographs. And then we quietly find out, this is big, this <laughs> is quite big. But for us, it was fun. We didn't think political or anything. You know, I was just uh, turned 16, so I didn't think of of political uh, reasons. And so only for my passion for football and to be with all the team and meet some other teams. And you did from right around the world. Let's give our listeners an idea of just what those games sounded like back in 1971. <laughs> the crowds, yeah, 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 and and you know, I'm there when you I hear this, and when I saw the film once and twice, you know, it's I am there. I feel it. I see that when we see the cars, I smell the the gas. The you know, I I feel the uh, so close. It's amazing. I felt I was there watching it, and I, I'm feeling goosebumps, honestly, to hear you talk about yeah. it and what it meant to all of you. Just walking onto that pitch, I think 110,000 people were were in the stands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we uh, uh, was escorted by police to the stadium and drive under the stadium. And when we go up to the the, the field, it's behind one goal, and we barely saw the sky. It was people all over. But in a way, it was not scaring. I I remember just enjoying it. And we can see when we are walking around and waving to the crowd, we are smiling. And mm. I don't know, now I wouldn't smile. I was shaking my legs <laughs> and barely <laughs> could walk. But it was like a dream. Rachel, she mentioned the reporters greeting them. Your film also shows some moments with reporters, you know, in the UK and the questions they're asking, I mean, are are um, sexist, to, to, to say the least. Did the media uh, at the Cup treat them like players too? Or did you still see at that time some some of that sexism? It was, it was very mixed. But there was one particular publication that was, that was very dedicated to representing the women as as athletes and to 
Um, the discussions around the games, the match reports are exactly the same as you would expect from any male players. Um, at the same time, of course, the you know sport and one of the reasons it's it's such a brilliant vehicle for making films about society is it is it's a reflection of what was happening at the time and a reflection of the world that these women were living in. And one of the articles that we feature was an interview with um, so Jaime Dejaro, who was the one of the lead organisers and a real driving force behind getting the tournament off the ground wouldn't have happened without him. But equally, when he gives an interview to the New York Times, um, the headline the New York Times chooses is soccer goes sexy south of the border. <laughs> And the pullout quotes from him are, you know, this is a, a mix of men's two favourite things, women and soccer. So they're dealing with that. And then there's the sort of the slightly and potentially sexualised versions of the of the mascot. But, you know, there's, there's we're looking at this is within a world very much set in 1971. Um, and I think we wanted to not shy away from showing both the amazing amount of support and this sort of parallel world where these women were being treated not just you know not just as equals but with, completely within their own right as athletes and people that could bring a huge crowd to a stadium but at the same time the world you know, it wasn't perfect they were still having to battle against being told okay we're going to paint the goalposts pink we're going to put flowers behind the goalposts and so it wasn't just plain sailing and did all of that stuff on the side bother you or did you tune it out I think I, I tuned it out. Uh, we didn't think like it was uh, negative. We 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 uh, saw it like uh, they were passionate in football too, and they uh, maybe we were a little naive. But uh, you know, you were that focused on matter. you were focused on yeah. the, on and the also, game. You know, they, average, they were they were sixteen, seventeen, yeah. eighteen years old. They allowed, yeah. allowed to be naive. There's this idea that. You know, women, you know, the athletes at any time need to be activists as well as being athletes. And that's something we're seeing today. And that's one of those other themes that echoes across the 50 yeah. years is putting the responsibility on Anne and her team to be sorting out the inherent sexism. It's really not fair when they're focusing on playing football. I'm in the As It Happens studio with Rachel Ramsey, co-director of COPA 71, which looks at the unofficial Women's World Cup held in Mexico City in 1971. And on the line with us is Anne Stengard, who represented Denmark with her team at that tournament. Another issue that is certainly timely that you address in the film that was a reality then is pay equity. Very different conversation, though, then compared to what we're, we're having now. Rachel, just give us a taste of what was happening at that time. So, you know, there was no thought of uh, women's football being professional. It was only recently that men's football was becoming professional in its own right. But it was noted that given that this was a commercial enterprise and the Mexican organizers were clearly selling tickets um, and selling out stadiums, that there was a lot of money changing hands and moving around. Um, now, it's worth mentioning that the reason that the teams from England and Italy uh, Denmark, France, Argentina were able to attend the tournament is that they were sponsored by Martini Rossi. So there was sponsorship involved. People were keen to keep putting money into it and supporting it. But then you also have this level of like, well, there's also, you know, there's a lot of merchandise being sold as well. I mean, the merchandise was incredible <laughs> for the time, very like ahead of its time. And it was noted to the Mexican players that somebody was getting paid a lot of money um, and it wasn't them. And that like their male counterparts, they should be getting a cut of this as it had happened the year before. And when they put that request in, obviously that put people's backs up very quickly. They went from celebrated to, to, to vilified, vilified very yeah, quickly. Overnight. And I think the way I, I understand that is that there is a sense that how dare you ask for money? How dare you ask to be paid? Why isn't the adulation enough? And it's about the power that women have when they have their own money and their own finances. It's independence. And to and hear them speaking about it is exactly is, and is quite fascinating. We um, and and they still the Mexican team still feel a sense of that they shouldn't have done that. You know, they're still they they were fighting against them. They were very strong. They're very brave in what they did, but there is a sense that they you know it's so deep the level of it, within that society of saying that women shouldn't have their own financial independence that they were really shamed for having done that. And I think we hope that we can honour them in telling this story again 50 years later and how far ahead of their time they were. I got a sense watching this, Rachel and Anne, 
the the camaraderie, the rivalry, um, the joy of seeing these tournaments and the joy you take from playing, but also the frustration of what you were up against. Do those emotions fit with, with what you were feeling at? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I... I, I I didn't think uh, negative. I didn't think uh, uh, about you know money where we don't have anything or, or I, I I must say I was too young to think on mm-hmm. anything that football and and now with this film you know I realized a lot of things and you know it's so emotional because um, especially the the. Uh, the English team, how bad they were treated. It's beyond anything. I, I, I uh, no. And I, I'm so happy that we, um, we can see it because it makes me feel like we all were together. And I uh, wish we, at that time, knew anything about it so we could have, uh, yeah, supported them in a way. It is. There are very moving moments. The, the players are stoic, but they talk about the humiliation they face, not because of anything they did on the pitch, but just coming back to to the UK, and in one case being very publicly humiliated. And, and when people see that, they'll they'll know that. What was it like for you, Anne, when you came back? For us, it mm-hmm. was uh, great. You know, we were taking uh, in the airport. A lot of people and friends and family was there, and we were at the city hall and eating pancakes, and and we were celebrated, and uh, it was great. But you know, we we was not abandoned like the English team or Mexican team. We still played football, but we were not uh, a part of the the association mm-hmm. the football association they didn't want us to join it it was first in 74 we come into this uh, association well i wanted to ask you about that rachel because you know brandy chastain does say that that she's she's ashamed she didn't know anything about this but also she said this was intentional to hide women's football why why didn't fifa capitalize on the success and the, the popularity? What was at play within that organization? I think, you know, we, we mentioned FIFA by name quite a few times mm. throughout the film, but really it's a stand-in for, you know, we could also use the word establishment or society or anyone who has, has power. Um, I think one of the reasons we really wanted to cover all, make sure all six countries who participated were really well covered, and we also go, we do go to the US as well, is to show how how the sport was reflect was reflected reflecting the different values in different societies at the time. So Denmark was, you know, when compared to some of the other countries that we feature, um, acceptance of women and their roles was was very different to you know rural Mexico or industrial Italy or parts of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, regardless of how far you know, women's rights had come in each country at the time, in the early 1970s, still every single football association, very specifically, was was making sure as much as possible that the women didn't, and in inverted commas, did not dilute the brand, the, how that men's football was growing. The idea that women were going to play this sport was, there were some ideas that it could potentially upset the, the growth of the men's game. That was one thing that certainly was at the top of of their minds, uh, yes, among others, think, I'm sure. And just and just overall, you know, when, when we ask that question, you know, why and how, it's it's a really boring answer, and the answer is just sexism. And so <laughs> that's why we've made a whole film that f- doesn't feel boring and doesn't have you know those words, sort of two easy words thrown into it. But we really wanted to show the experience of that rather than just telling people what happened. It, it's certainly not a boring film, and has all of the the build up to to a great match and a great tournament and you see that build up throughout when you mention the word sexism footballers today are certainly still dealing with with these realities these issues at the women's world cup celebrations for example this year luis rubiales kissing midfielder jenny hermoso you know clearly you made this film to tell the world about something that shouldn't have been forgotten but do you hope it will change attitudes as well um yes i certainly hope so i think you always go into making a project like this um, and there's so many people around the world who've been part of it. I think Anne mentioned um, 
uh, a journalist, Hans Krab, earlier um, in Denmark, who wrote a book. But he was the first person to research and write a book about the Danish team specifically. Now, in every single country, we've found people who've been dedicated and quietly working away on keeping these kind of stories alive and being able to talk to each of them and bring it all together for the first time has been incredibly important. Yeah, we hope, and it seems like exactly the right time for it to be coming out. And yes, we really hope for it to have have a serious impact. And I think there's something else. I got this from audiences coming out of the screenings was to say, they're like, okay, well, if if something this massive could have happened and we know nothing about it and there's all the footage to prove it, how many other stories like this are there? Are you feeling proud, Anne? Yes, I'm very proud. And, you know, I can see the light in the end of the tunnel, but we have to work on and it will never stop. We have to fight uh, and and uh, believe what you want to do, you can do, even if you are a woman. <laughs> Especially if you're a woman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was, um, that was a line that um, at the end of all of the interviews I did like, with all of these amazing women around the world and I'd ask you know what would you say to your 16 year old self to your 20 year old self however old they'd been at the time um and pretty much they all said be yourself you can do it do your own thing don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do and I've just found that incredibly inspiring and you know there's a meta level of getting this film it was hard to get this film made really yeah and knowing now that it can happen if you keep pushing and pushing um, feels yeah that I think we all feel very proud of this project and Rachel I very much appreciate your time thank you oh thank you so much it was a pleasure thank you that was Rachel Ramsey speaking with Neil in September about the premiere of the documentary Copa 71 which she co-directed with James Erskine Danish national player Anne Stengard is featured in the film, and we reached her in Gulne, Denmark. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Thanks for listening. I'm Megan Williams. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.